0: All right, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Isn't it fun that we begin every Sunday school with the Bible? I really like the Bible, it's my friend. Acts chapter 2. All this month, we're talking about church history. If you've been coming to Sunday school, you know that every new month is a new Sunday school topic. We've been talking about church history, and uh, this month, today specifically, we're talking about charismatic, and Pentecostal church history. Sound kind of fun? Hopefully it will be. I've had fun researching it. Acts chapter 2 is the story of Pentecost. And I, I, I was joking around, kind of half joking, kind of not half joking. Someone asked me, oh, what are you teaching in Sunday school? I said, oh, the, the history of the Pentecostal church. And they said, well, when did that really first start? And I said, Acts chapter 2. So here we're, gonna, we're about to read it. Let's read it, shall we? Uh, Acts chapter 2 verse 1 says, when the day of Pentecost came, and so Pentecost, we call, as Christians, we we think it's the day that uh, the, the, it's, it'll say that the tongues descended and uh, people spoke in tongues, and that's what we think of when we think Pentecost, but before that happened, it was a Jewish holiday. Penta means 50. It's 50 days after uh, the Sabbath of, let's see, Sabbath, uh, Sabbath of the Passover week, so When the day of Pentecost came, they were together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven, (laughs) filled the house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each one of them. And for some reason, I was scouring the Internet for cool pictures. I found a clip art version of the, the tongues of fire descending. I didn't know they had a clip art of Pentecost but, but I think that's cool. And so that's, what, that's exactly what it looked like. Those are tongues of fire descending. But could you imagine it for real? People gathering. Jesus has just ascended into heaven. They're kind of confused. They're not really sure where to go. And then God gives them this direction. They, they, it says that what seems to be tongues of fire descended upon them. Verse 4 says, All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. They began to speak in other languages. The same same, tongues, languages, same kind of thing here. As the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, the crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one of them heard him speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each one of us hears them in our own native languages? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Crete, visitors of Rome, both Jews and converts to Jerusalem, uh, Judaism, Cretans, and Arabs. We heard them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. So do you see it? Tongues of fire descend. People start speaking in unknown languages, and yet people, the other people hear them speaking in their own languages. Cool or not Cool. Very cool. <laughs> totally cool. They heard them declaring the wonders of God in their own languages. Amazed and perplexed. Duh. They asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them, saying they've had too much wine. Then Peter, the, Peter the leader, stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men who are not drunk, as you suppose, it's only nine in the morning. (laughs) No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And then he quotes a a scripture from Joel, the book of Joel in the Old Testament. It says, in the last day, God will pour out my spirit. Excuse me, this is what God says. I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above, signs on earth below, blood and fire, billows of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, the moon to blood before the coming coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. God, we just thank you right now for the story of Pentecost your spirit descending on those first disciples, those first apostles in such a way that their their voices, even though maybe they didn't even understand what they were saying, they were speaking your glorious wonders, and other people heard them speaking in their own language. God, we just praise you for that story. We thank you right now that the story of Pentecost is the beginning of the charismatic and Pentecostal movement, and we're going to look look at that today, God, and just thank you and glorify you For your work in history. And so, God, we just praise you right now. We thank you. And everybody screamed, Amen. All right, everybody. Let's get started on a sweet lesson, shall we? If you're new to Sunday school, um, I like to joke around that we are the nerds of the mill. Is anybody a nerd? Yes, you are. You're all nerds in here. (laughs) We are the people, we like to go a little bit deeper. than, than, say, the average uh, person that's a Christian. Not that we're better than everybody else. However, I think we're pretty cool because we like to go a little deeper in the area of knowledge. I mean, think about it for just a second. Where can you learn about charismatic and Pentecostal church history? You kind of have to take a class, don't you? You kind of have to read a book or something. But here, that's what we do in the Mill Sunday School. We go a little bit deeper. So are you ready to go deeper? Yes, you are. I know you are. Here's, let's start off with, um, let's start off with the term charismatic. We went over this. So this is a, sort of a review. If you're taking notes on your skillet, we call it a Sunday school millet skillet. Uh, this is a review right now. Uh, we kind of talked about last week, we defined the term charismatic because lots of you come from all different backgrounds. Maybe some of you are like, charismatic, I kind of heard that. What is that? Does that mean you guys are crazy? Yes, it does. (laughs) It means we're crazy. Just kidding. The term charismatic, I'm going to read this definition. It's the definition I gave you last week. By the way, do you know what the term uh, in the Greek charismatic or charismos means? Anybody? Any nerd? What? And No. Well, yeah, it comes from, we use it as influential, but it means gift. Someone said it. I heard it. It means gifting. And so if you're influential, you have giftings. Charismos in the Greek means gifts. So the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Here's the definition I gave you for charismatic. Um, it's an umbrella term used to describe Christians who believe that the manifestations of the Holy Spirit seen in the first century Christian church are available to contemporary Christians and ought to be experienced and practiced today. Should I read all that again? Okay. It's a, it's a, I should have put it up on the board. My bad charismatic it's an umbrella term used to describe christians who believe that the manifestations big word but it just means the acts manifestation manifestations of the holy spirit seen in the first century church like what we just read about are available to contemporary christians that's today that's us and ought to be experienced and practiced today one more time okay it's an umbrella term used to describe christians Who believe in the manifestations of the Holy Spirit seen in the first century church? They're available to contemporary Christians and ought to be experienced and practiced today. You got it? One more time? Really? (laughs) It's a good definition. It's worth repeating a third time, especially for some of you that are like, really, what does charismatic mean? Fourth time? Okay. It's it's the term, think about it, it's a good definition. It's the term used to describe Christians who who believe that the manifestations of the Holy Spirit seen in the first century church are available to contemporary Christians and ought to be experienced and practiced today. What does that mean? I.e., miracles still happen today. The gift of prophecy that you could say... Now, I'm going to go pray, and I'm going I'm to ask God to, to show me something. I'm going to ask God to specifically show me a direction or give me a word. That we could pray for that today. Amen? That, we could, that God could speak to us. That's what we believe. We believe that healings do happen. If someone says, i got a headache, then you could just say, oh, too bad. No, you could say, well, here's some Tylenol, but let me pray for you as well. And put your hand on their head and say, God, would you heal this person's headache? And you know what? I've, I've prayed for someone before, and their headache got healed. It's kind of cool that God healed someone. Um, we believe in that. We believe in glossolalia. What's that mean? It means in the gift of tongues. And, and, and I, I could, we could spend the rest of Sunday school today talking about the gift of tongues, but it's really just, uh, it's called a prayer language, or some people refer to it as uh, prayer language, or the gift of tongues, or speaking in tongues, all kind of the same thing. And so it's, it's just one of the gifts, one of the things that Charismatics or Pentecostals believe in. And I, I said last time that charismatic and Pentecostal, I'm going to say it's the exact same thing for the purpose of this Sunday school business. It's like saying Coke and Pepsi are the same exact thing. Kind of true, right? Some of you are like, no way. I would never drink a Coke. I'm a Pepsi-holic. I'm a Coke-holic. a I would never drink Pepsi. But if you, honestly, if you're explaining to someone that had never drinking a Coke or Pepsi, I don't know where they would be hiding. But you would say that it's the same thing, right? Yes, you would. And so charismatic, Pentecostal, they're two different kind of things that are very similar. We're going to call them the same thing for the purpose of this class. Um, let me uh, let me write down this. It's its more of a little chart thing. I kind of t- mentioned this last time, but I want to go over it. It's a big picture thing that I think is is really cool. And so if you're writing it down, you write, write down the, the word... Word, and the word spirit on one side. And these they're, they're a part on the, on the whiteboard because they're two polar kind of ideas. And this is just kind of my thinking. It, I didn't coin this or make it up, but it's just a good way of thinking about word and spirit churches. These are two different types of churches. Just big picture, looking at a church, kind of where do they fit in. And a word church... Is it would be a church like I used to go to this Baptist church in uh, Utah that was really um, non-charismatic, even leaning towards being anti-charismatic. They they were not open to the gifts of the Spirit. If if you were in a prayer meeting at this Baptist church and and someone said, hey, "Let's let's stop the prayer meeting. I believe God is is telling me right now that we need to do go in this direction," someone would probably a leader might say, "Hey, wait. Let's just." I know that you're you're trying to do good here, but let's let's hold to the Bible. Let's hold to the word. We're we're not open to new, fresh revelation that you think you're receiving. We're all about the word. We're all about getting into the Bible and letting the Bible alone speak to us. So that's kind of this this framework for this we're a word kind of church. That's its emphasis is all about the word, the Bible. Is that good? Of course it is. The Bible is good. The Bible is the best way that we have to understand who God is. But on the other side of the continuum of churches and just thinking about big ideas, spirit churches would be more charismatic churches. I've been to churches. uh, I was at one church in Florida that was extremely charismatic. And during their services, not a prayer time, at a service, they would have a microphone like right here pointing out into the crowd. So at any time, if I was teaching right now in this church, at any time, any one of you could come up and just just grab the mic and say, I think God is, is showing me this right now. And just kind of interrupt the service. They were very open to the spirit. Have you been to churches like that? Maybe not like that. But um, uh, they were just very charismatic. Very open to prophecy. And, and, and just prophecy. When I, I mean the mic was just there. For it. Wouldn't it be a little weird? If someone just came up. I would be like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> Security. Um, so here, here's this. Do you kind of get where I'm coming from? This is the circle around spirit. Here is a circle around a word type of church. And I was in Utah. Maybe this this would be a good story for you. I was going, I kind of had my foot in two different churches, which I don't really suggest doing. I suggest going to one church and one church only. But I was kind of, I went to the word church, the Baptist church, and then I got filled with the Holy Spirit and was really into the gifts and um, learning about those things. And so I kind of went to another church and had one foot in one church and one foot in another church. Has anybody ever done that before? A couple people. It's not the best thing to do, but um, there was a prayer meeting organized to go downtown Salt Lake City and just pray for the city and then go witnessing and and telling people. Salt Lake City is very much Mormon, and so to witness to people on the street who are probably Mormons. And so we planned this evening, it was like a Saturday night, to go down, pray, and then witness to people just downtown Salt Lake City. But it was raining. So we went down anyways, and we prayed... Uh, we prayed at the capitol building under this covering of uh so it wouldn't rain on us we're praying and then we just kind of decided it's all wet out let's just go home let's just continue the prayer meeting for how long we were going to go witness and then go home and so we did that but then i heard some feedback from the word church that oh we just we just went down and wasted our time because all we did was pray and then this church was like wow all we did was pray yeah that was awesome I, there was prophecies over the city. And, and so these two churches combined, and the experience was that one, the, the word church was just kind of like, that was a waste of time that all we did was just pray. We should have gone and witnessed. And so it's this continuum, this balance between two different types of churches. And you could see it all across America. There's churches that would lean more towards the word type church, and there's churches that would lean maybe over here, away way over here, into very spirit type churches. And I explain all of this to say, that New Life Church, I think, I mean, it's, it's, I'm a pastor here, so maybe I'm just biased, but I think we really do a really, 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 really good job of fitting in to this middle ground between the Spirit Church, a church that's open to the Spirit, and saying, God, whatever you want to do, new directions, God, that you want to do, bring it. Bring it on. We're ready to receive new directions. Yet, at the same time, we're very much a word church. We love the Bible. We opened Sunday school this morning with the Bible. As we all go to the, to the next service, the 11 o'clock service, most of us will go in there, sit down. We'll probably, take, we'll probably learn a lesson from, right from the Bible because we're a word church. And so it's the spirit and word combo thing. And I think New Life Church fits right in here. And I think that's pretty cool. I like that a lot. But throughout history, we're going to look back today and, and next Sunday and look back and, and see that some churches, charismatic churches, because of what was going on, uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the, I guess, just the culture of churches, it was very much a word church, fundamental, just only Bible only, that they had to lean way over here in order to say, we're not like them. And so as we look back at church history, you're going to see some weird things going on, but you have to realize that it's not our context. It was a context when other things were going on in the society, when people had to, had to revolt from that and say, we're not like that, we're like this. And then another movement said, whoa, we're not like that. We're like this. So that's big picture stuff. And you'll see that. You'll see what I'm talking about as I move on. Because I see your faces. You're like, what? But you'll understand in just a second. I guarantee it. All right, so that's word versus spirit, church. And, and I don't mean at all to say that it's a versus kind of thing. Because it's not. Lots of churches have a combination of both. And I think New Life Church does a really good job of doing both. So the question could be asked of any one of you now, when did the Pentecostal charismatic church begin? What would you say? Yeah, first, it was maybe Pentecost was the first time, you know, that the, the church, that's where we come from. It's the Pentecostal church history starts in Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, it's right here. But then someone could ask, well, seriously, when did the first charismatics or Pentecostals, when did that start in the United States? You know what a really good answer might be? Well, with the first settlers that came over, last time we talked about the Quakers. Do you remember them? Remember the Quaker oatmeal? They didn't invent oatmeal; they just like the, they're named, The oatmeal is named after the Quakers. But the Quakers came over in 1650. They were some of the first colonists to come over into the Americas, and they believed in the Holy Spirit. As far as remember last time I talked about their services, they would sit together in a, in a room and just sit around a table, and there'd be no leader. And then some person would just start saying, I believe God's saying this. And then that's that's the service. They would get together and just sit in silence until someone thought they were hearing from God. Cool, but a little weird, don't you think? I think so. Quakers came in the 1650s. Um, they're definitely not, they wouldn't consider themselves as today we would, we would proudly say that New Life Church is, is a charismatic church. I don't think they would say that. They would say, we're Quakers, but we do believe and we're open to the Holy Spirit. There's, there's evidences that they spoke in tongues, he, prayed for healings. There's evidences of prophecy in almost all their meetings. That's what it was all about. And so the first, if, if someone asks you, when did the charismatic first come to the United States? I would say 1600s, man. Quakers, dude. That's what I would say. Here's the here's the next guy that came after that. The, the, so the Quaker movement, and then we have, in your notes, it says, what does it say specifically? The holiness movement. Put, i.e., John Wesley. Have you heard of John Wesley before? Any John Wesley friends? Fans, I mean. <laughs> I guess he's he's been dead a couple years. Um, John Wesley was a dude that, uh, d- does anybody know what church he started? It's still around today. Yes, the Methodist Church. You guys are so cool. John Wesley, born in 1703 uh, in England. He, during his college years, he became a Christian, uh, a very serious Christian. And some, sometimes college people like to get credit cards and go crazy with money, and then they get alcohol, and then they join frats and all this dumb stuff during their college years. John Wesley, do you know what he did? Pray. He prayed. He, he joined a group called The Holy Club. Wouldn't that be, doesn't that sound like a fun club to be a part of? The Holy Club. He joined the Holy Club, and it really, it kind of reminds me of the Furnace. You guys know what the Furnace is? It it sounds that cool. It just sounds like a bunch of guys, I guess it was all guys, no girls, sorry. Um, They got together, and they prayed together. They had accountability together. They uh, uh, just encouraged each other. And out of this little Holy Club in Oxford University in England comes some of the great revivalists of the 17th. Uh, the 1700s, I was going to say 18th century. And so, have you heard of George Whitfield? He's a big-time dude as well. He came out of this holy club. And so the holy club meets John Wesley, George Whitfield, some other dudes. They decide, let's go to America and start preaching. And so they come here to America, although it wasn't called America yet. It was like, the, well, maybe it was. It was just the 13 colonies. This is pre-1776. And we have what is called the First Great Awakening in the United States. Have you heard about that before? You probably have, because it's like even in secular history, it's a big deal. Because it's not just like a bunch of people became Christians. It's like a bunch of people became Christians. Huge portions, percentages of the population became Christian. It's like George Whitefield would go, set up a little stage with his buddies, you know, build a little stage thing in the middle of a field, and start preaching, and 50,000 people would come and listen to him. Without microphones. Think about it. I mean, the, Desper- the Desperation Conference was pretty huge, but it wasn't 50,000 people without a microphone. I mean, can you even imagine that? Sweet. And lots of people came to know Jesus. It's an interesting fact. I hopefully you do not think I'm being mean. Um, but George Whitfield he was cross-eyed. Everybody say, oh. And, and so today, if you're cross-eyed, there's a simple surgery you could do. But back then, the dude was cross-eyed. And it's just, to me, it's just like, it's a little weird. I've seen pictures, paintings of them. And it's just, I'm sorry. But here's the point, that God used this man that was cross-eyed. And you look at a cross-eyed person, and you know they're just as smart as anybody else. But it's, you just kind of look at them, and you can't get past that. Or like the lazy eye, and you're like, are you talking to me? What? no, um, oh, that's so mean. I shouldn't be doing this. But... But the point is is that God used him despite a weakness, a visual weakness that you would see when you saw this person. God used him. I mean, speaking to 50,000 people without a microphone, that's pretty cool. And then people coming to know Jesus Christ out of that. And I say John Wesley, and I say George Whitefield. There's another dude, a part of the First Great Awakening. Uh, His name is Jonathan Edwards. Anybody heard of him before? In high school, you probably read a, a sermon of his called... Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Have you read that before? And while it's all about fire and brimstone, while it's kind of mean uh, and very judgmental, it's still true. It calls you, the audience, and me to repent and come to God. And so it's a good sermon. And lots of people during the first great awakening came to know Jesus. And what's so cool about bringing this into the charismatic realm is that John Wesley, if you read his journals and read his books, and George Whitefield, the same way, talked about miraculous things happening. They talked about the gift of tongues. John Wesley refers to something called a second blessing. He refers to it as that. It's referring to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, as recorded in the book of Acts. Jonathan Edwards, he was like this prim and proper preacher dude he would just straight up read his sermons and so it'd be like me just like straight blah 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 reading my sermon or teaching whatever he just he was like a prim and proper dude and yet his congregation when he spoke um people would see visions of hell people would see manifestations of the holy spirit and that they would start shaking in their seat or screaming or crying or just saying god have mercy on me And just manifestations like that, miracles began to happen in the first great awakening, healings. And so we have to say, looking back, that the first great awakening was part of our charismatic history. There was some charismatic stuff going on, as according to our definition that we used, that said, manifestations of the Holy Spirit and gifts of the Holy Spirit can be experienced today. The first great awakening led to something called the camp meetings. The camp meetings were going out west And and rallying people around um, and bringing like a revival tent kind of meeting to the people that were out west. And by out west, I mean Tennessee and uh, Iowa. (laughs) Because that was the west to the 13. I mean, if you think about it, the 13 colonies are here. West of that would be, you know, the far west. You know, out in the middle of nowhere would be like Tennessee and uh, (laughs) Ohio and things like that. We, We obviously consider that east, but that was west to them. And so they would have these big meetings where, um, I mean, just think about it. All, your, your, all year long, you're living in a small little one-bedroom house with your whole family, which is probably like eight little brothers and sisters. And there's really, you're kind of bored your whole year. And you're like, man, we're the neighbor kids. Well, they're, oh, they live like, what, 100 acres away? And you can't just play with them every day. And so these revival meetings that would happen once or twice a year would be huge. They would be like, oh, it's the talk of, the whole year to go to one of these revival meetings. You come, everybody from like the surrounding villages and towns and all their farms come to this meeting. Thousands of people, preachers start preaching. Lots of people become saved. Um, And we have lots of examples of the gift of tongues being used at these meetings. The gift of prophecy, healings happening, screaming, shaking, visions of hell. They called it falling exercises. Has anyone heard of the term uh, being slain in the spirit? You've probably seen. You may have seen it at a church. Uh, It doesn't happen around New Life very much. I've seen it actually at New Life. Uh, You might have seen it on, uh, like, a Christian station or something, where someone prays for someone else and then they get all weak and they fall over. Have you seen that? It's it's called being slain in the spirit, and it's not like this new thing that just happened with Benny Hinn. It's uh, it happened in these these revival meetings in the in the 1700s. They called them falling exercises. That's what this what they called them. And so we have this first great awakening that has to be a part of our charismatic and Pentecostal church history. We look back and say, some of those things are kind of weird. Yeah, but it's, it's this whole thing. It's a reaction to the, the, the prim and the proper um, churches that you just kind of go and sit down and, and say a little nice little prayer and then go eat lunch and you're done for your religion for the entire week. It's, it's a calling that church isn't just about religion. Church is about getting together with the community of believers and really going forward in what God is calling you to do, and even if that means some weird things. So that's, what, that's why I include that in our lesson today for Charismatic Church History. The, second, the next thing on our notes is a dude named Charles Finney. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of Charles Finney. Raise your hand if, keep your hand raised if you like him. I like him. He's a really cool guy. There's like two of us that like Charles Finney. He's a cool dude. Um, he's part of the Second Great Awakening. What I, just, what I just talked about, Edwards, Wesley, Whitfield, was part of the First Great Awakening. The Second Great Awakening that happened in the United States is like the 1800s. And here's what Charles Finney is known for. Charles Finney uh, is known for preaching in the 1800s as part of the Second Great Awakening, preaching um, innovations and in preaching revival meetings, just like setting up a little tent or some kind of stage and people just coming to hear what this dude is talking about. And he's also... The inventor of... Are you ready for this? He invented the altar call. I'm serious. He, he invented something called the anxious bench. Where people... If, he said, if you're thinking about becoming a Christian, come come sit up here on this bench. <laughs> Wouldn't that be a little weird? He's like, if you're thinking about accepting Jesus, just come sit up here. And so he kind of invented the idea of coming up front to give your life to Christ. And of course, any, anybody that's ever been to a Billy Graham, Crusade or, I mean, just most churches today do some sort of an altar call. They'll say, if God is touching you, or if you want to accept Jesus, come to the front and, and make it make that mark, make that decision. Charles Finney invented that. That's pretty cool, I think. I don't know. I mean, if I invented it, I'd be like, yeah, I invented that. No big deal. <laughs> he, uh, he he stressed the work of humans in a revival. He says that it seems, this is... A, Finney lives on. It's a book about Finney, and he, he has some of his writings in here. Finney says, It seems conclusive that there is much that Christians are to do in the preparation and promotion of a true revival. Finney believed that um, when a revival happens, like the Second Great Awakening, or if you're praying for God to really touch you know, your youth group, or God to really touch the mill, or God to really touch the mill Sunday school, that, if, that God would come down and just radically, you know, just blow up, make you know, just bring His Holy Spirit fire into all of our lives, that we could pray for that, we could want that, and it's all about God. It truly is. But Finney would say that there has to be some human part, human side of that, that we can't just want it, we have to desperately seek it. We have to be anxiously preparing for revival. And I kind of like that. It's, it's giving us back our responsibility in the idea of witnessing because who does God use to bring His message to the world? He uses us. I mean, he, 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 it's Him that, that we believe in. It's Him that gives us power to, to go and to deliver His message. But it's really us carrying out the message that has to be done. He says this. I mentioned Finney because he was definitely charismatic. He says, uh, The Spirit excites desires to, to be uttered, except by groans, something that language cannot utter, make the soul too Full to utter its feelings by words. It's kind of an old English way of saying that he sometimes he ran out of things to pray for, and so the spirit excited desires in him, and he spoke in words. To too to his soul to. What is, I can't even read this. It's like an old English. It's like reading the King James version. <laughs> Nothing wrong with the King James, though. Something that languages cannot utter, making the soul too full to utter its feelings by words. So he spoke in things. We would say he, he had a prayer language and spoke to God without words. He spoke to God in, in utterances um, that connected him with God when he ran out of things to pray for. That's the gift of tongues. And so we look at that and say, oh, Finney spoke in tongues. At revivals, there was lots of, he called it um, words of knowledge. Have you ever heard that term before, a word of knowledge? Basically, it's kind of like prophecy. It kind of It is prophecy where where Finney would be preaching in front of thousands of people and say, there's someone here named so and so. And you're here, and you have, and he would just say, You have a drinking problem, and you need to come forward and give your life to Christ. And the person that just got their name called out was like, Whoa, what the heck happened? And it was, it was God giving Finney a message that someone here was, had a certain name, and they had a certain problem in their life, and he called them out on it. We call it, he called it at least a word of knowledge. And that's definitely charismatic, don't you think? I would say so, I mean if it happened to me, I'd be like, dang it. <laughs> How'd you know? <laughs> just kidding here here's here's what he says. I'm going to read uh something from Finney. These are six reasons that he gives to accept um what he calls what does he call it? He calls it um, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and maybe this is a good time to talk about what the baptism of the Holy Spirit versus just being a christian and having the holy spirit in you when you're a christian you get the holy spirit living inside of you did you know that did you know that we have the holy spirit living inside of us now pretty cool and so before you're a christian in the spiritual realm what i would say is that the holy spirit leads you and guides you towards god but as you accept jesus and say jesus i believe in you jesus i i accept your sacrifice on the cross for my sins my life is all about you now the Holy Spirit then comes and lives inside of you. And so every single one of us that's a Christian, the Holy Spirit is living inside of us. Pretty cool. But then the book of Acts, the Bible talks about maybe a second experience where people start speaking in tongues. The Bible calls it the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I think it's referring to, because the Holy Spirit's already living inside of you, I think it's referring to, my, my kind of terminology for thinking about it is that it increases the relationship between you and the Holy Spirit already living inside of you, this baptism of the Holy Spirit. And if you're interested in that kind of thing, if this is new to you, for some of us that have been going to New Life Church for a really long time, it's not new to us. We've heard different teachings on it. We've read the parts in the Bible that are about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But there's probably some of us in here that are new to that kind of thing. And if you're new to it, the best place to go, the best book, some of you probably own it, it's called the Bible. It's a good book to go to. Read the book of Acts. And try to figure out this whole baptism on the Holy Spirit thing because it's awesome. And here's why Finney says you need to know about it. Number one, because you have been promised to it. Number two, because God has commanded it. Number three, it's essential for your own growth and grace that you should be filled with the Holy Spirit. Number four, it's important as you should be it's important as it is that you should be sanctified, being made holy. Verse uh, number five, sorry. It is necessary as it, sh- as it is that you should be useful and... <laughs> this is written so weird. It is necessary as it is that you should be useful in doing good in the world. Basically, it says the Holy Spirit, the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, being filled with the Holy Spirit helps you to be useful in the world. And the final one, number six. If you do not have the Spirit of God in you, you will dishonor God and disgrace the church. Wow. So Finney was really interested. This dude that spoke and led our country into a second great awakening was really into the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Miraculous things happening. Words of knowledge. Do you like Finney now? I kind of like him. Number three. Read them all again? Okay, I will. Because they're good enough to read again. Number one. Because it's been promised to you. I'm going to kind of paraphrase it because it's hard to read. Number two. God has commanded it. Number three, it's essential for your own growth and grace. Number four, it's important that that you should be made holy. You're writing them down. (laughs) You're actually writing them down? I'm so impressed. Uh, Let's see. I'll do which one? What? Oh, nerds. I thought you were saying (laughs) words. like, what? Oh, we have fun in here, don't we? Yes, we do. Uh, Let's see. Number one, you've been promised. Number two... God's commanded it. Number three, it's essential for your growth in grace. Number four, it's important that you need... I guess I don't know how to reword it. It's something about sanctification. You need it to be sanctified. That's not salvation, by the way. I would never say that you need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit or speak in tongues to be saved. If anyone says that, just say, that's not what the Bible says. Uh, Number five is it's necessary... That you sh- uh, how do I want to say this? To be useful in the world, you need the Holy Spirit living inside of you, is what Finney says. To be em- yeah, to be empowered, to be, to, to be witnesses, you need the Holy Spirit. And the final one is, is kind of like the ooh one. It says that y- you need it so that you do not dishonor God and disgrace the church by not having the, the Holy Spirit living inside of you in, in such a way that you have the baptism of the Holy, Holy Spirit increasing that relationship thing. Because I would not say that if, I would say if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, you're totally saved. You're totally um you're totally a Christian, you have all the rights of a believer, and yet there's still something more it seems like in the book of Acts. There's something more called the baptism of the Holy Spirit that charismatics believe in, that pentecostals believe in, that the first church believed in that is is isn't necessary for salvation, but it helps you a lot. How many, of, how many of you would say you've had experience with the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Quite a few of you. And so if you're new to this, ask one of those people their own experiences, and they'll be glad to tell you, right? Right. All right. Um, so that's Charles Finney. That's the Second Great Awakening. Now here's the real, uh, the real deal. When, so when someone asks you, when does the Pentecostal church start, what do you say? Pentecost. <laughs> Acts chapter 2. If someone asks you, well, when did the charismatic church kind of come to the United States? You could say, well, maybe the first settlers, the Quakers. But they're really asking you about the Pentecostal and charismatic movements as far as a church that, 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 that became distinctives, that, that a church would develop, and its distinction would be that it's charismatic or it's Pentecostal. And, and so the real answer that they're probably looking for is, and you've probably heard of these terms before. or Not terms, but the Topeka Revival or the Azusa Street Revival. Raise your hand. I'm just curious how many people have just heard of those. You might have no idea what it is, but you've heard of it. Okay, quite a few of us. That's really um, the beginnings of the, the Pentecostal church as we know it. And I am I'm, I'm, remember my idea is that Pentecostal, charismatic, same thing as far as, as, far as what we're talking about here. That the real birth... Of the Pentecostal or Charismatic Church was maybe in Topeka, Kansas, um, with a guy named Charles Parham. I don't think I, did I put his name? No, I just put Topeka, Kansas, in your notes. The pastor dude was named Charles Parham. He lived in the late eighteen hundreds and um, was was a preacher at Bethel Bible College in Topeka, Kansas, and he was praying. He was leading a, a uh, prayer meeting in 1901 it's a long time ago right like it's like 108 years ago um he was leading a a bible excuse me a prayer meeting on new year's eve service in 1901 i mean there's a lot of things that college kids can do on a new year's eve on new year's eve but he was leading a prayer meeting and there was lots of kids that were there college kids just like me just like you hanging out praying on new year's eve has anybody ever done that before it's so cool um, so I was hanging out New Year's Eve, 1901. That's the real turn of the century. I was one of those dudes that, on uh, in 1999, the uh, the turn of the millennium. I was saying I was one of those guys that was saying it's actually not till 2001 because there was no year zero, and everybody's just like Joe, that's so dumb. <laughs> and I was like, it's it's correct though. Technically, I'm right. <laughs> and they were just like Joe. Just party like it's 1999. Just relax, bro. And I said, no, I will not party like it's a new millennium until 2001. But party in a good way, of course. So 1901, Charles Parham is leading, uh, he's the preacher dude, leading a prayer meeting. And um, a girl there named Agnes Osmond begins to speak in what they refer to as tongues. And they thought, they alleged, that she was the first Reported person in history to do so since Pentecost in the New Testament, in the book of Acts. Did they know their history? Not really. I mean, I mean, they, didn't, they just didn't know their history. It's okay. Um, and so they thought that she was the first reported person in history to do so, to speak in tongues since the book of Acts. Not really true, but that's what they thought. They believed that they were ushering in new. Century 1901 is the official new century. So they believed that a new century was being ushered in. And, ta- and uh, Charles Parham taught that this new thing, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, evidences by the gift of tongues. He said that that is the evidence. That the tongues is the baptism, is the evidence for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He taught that tongues were a supernatural impartation of languages, which I would agree with. But he, but he would say it's only for the purpose of world evangelism. Therefore, he taught, and this is a little hairy, he taught that missionaries going out need not to learn foreign languages, since you could just speak in tongues <laughs> and then be a witness. I mean, probably not a good evangelism tool, right? I don't know. I mean, you probably need to know the language of the people that you're going to communicate to them. It's not just all it's speaking in tongues. Um, but that's what he thought. Um, armed with this new theology, Parm founded a church, uh, a church movement called the Apostolic Faith Movement, and began a whirlwind. Revival Tour of America, Midwest, to promote his exciting new experience. And that's really when, if we're looking back and we're saying, okay, there's a distinct Pentecostal and charismatic church in the United States. And by the way, it's huge, by the way. It's, it's, it's no longer just small little churches that are charismatic or Pentecostal. New Life Church would be considered charismatic. I joke around that we're charismatic light or diet charismatic. And it's for the whole reason that we kind of, we're not all just about the spirit. We're about the word, too. We're kind of in the middle and, and a good representation of both word and spirit. And so I just jokingly, because it's good to joke about your own self sometimes, say that we're diet charismatic. And I think it's a good, I don't know, maybe I can coin that, be famous for calling New Life Church diet charismatic. <laughs> um, so that is the the supposedly the, the, the beginning, and, and I say supposedly, but it kind of really is the beginning of this distinct church that will be charismatic or Pentecostal. It's, the, it's a church that has distinctives that that's really what they're about. Whereas John Wesley, Charles Finney, the Quakers were their own kind of thing and just some of them uh, spoke in tongues every once in a while or prayed for healings. But this Pentecostal church is what they're going to be all about. They're like all about it. Like the phrase, you know. And so they're all about the charismatic stuff. The Azusa Street Revival is very similar. Uh, A guy named, if you're writing down names, write down William J. Seymour. William J. Seymour. And Seymour is spelled S-E-Y-M-O-U-R. William Seymour. He was influenced by Charles Parham, went to some of his revivals. And it just so happens, and I include it because it's actually a pretty important piece of history, is that William Seymour was a black dude, a black guy, an African-American. And his church, his revival on Azusa Street, Azusa is a street in downtown Los Angeles, and there was this tiny little church, kind of a decrepit little barn church. (laughs) I think it really used to be a barn. And they turned it into a church, had some meetings there. And, um, well, I guess let me just tell you his story. He's 35 years old, starts a small group. He did not yet speak in tongues. He went to some of Charles Parham's revivals, learned about it, learned about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He, is, uh, he starts this 10-day fast. Three days into the 10-day fast, another guy named Edward Lee started speaking in tongues for the first time. And then Seymour hears that story, uh, learns about Edwards, Edward Lee speaking in tongues, shares that testimony to the group at a later time, and some three more people start speaking in tongues. And this is all while Seymour himself does not yet speak in tongues. Kind of cool. I don't know. Three days later, after the six more speak in tongues, Seymour speaks in tongues after an all-night prayer meeting. And so he begins his church, Azusa Street Revival, that happened in, if you're writing down dates, 1906. It started off as an African Methodist Episcopal church. I don't know how it could be Methodist and Episcopal at the same time, but it was... (laughs) It's the African church, Methodist Episcopal Church, starts this revival in 1906, and they're all about the speaking in tongues, the miraculous, the prophetic kind of stuff, all about the spirit church kind of stuff. And I say stuff because there's just the, the gifts that go along with that. The, let me read this. The revival was characterized by speaking in tongues, dramatic worship services, interracial mingling, which at that time was a really big deal. The fact that whites and blacks were coming together in the name of Jesus is just so cool to me, and, and at this time it was one of the first times that that was really happening and going on in such in such a huge way. The participants received criticism from secular media and Christians for behaving uh, behaviors considered to be outrageous and unorthodox, especially for the time. However, today the revival is considered by historians to be the primary catalyst for the spread of Pentecostalism in the 20th century. What was happening is that stuff was going on at this church. New stuff. People like, whoa, speaking in tongues, baptism of the Holy Spirit? I read that in Acts, but you guys are really doing that? Let's go see what's actually going on. And so you go to this church, and you, you just, wow, this stuff is going on. It's happening here. And you'd, maybe you bring it home to your own church. And people would come from around the country to see this revival. It was a pretty big deal at the time. And they would come back and bring some of the ideas of being baptized in the Holy Spirit back to their own churches. And this spread is called the first wave of the Pentecostal church. Let me read what, uh, this is what the Los Angeles Times in 1907 reported about this huge meeting that was happening on Azusa Street. Meetings are held in a tumbled down shack on Azusa Street. (laughs) And the devotees of this weird doctrine practice the most Fanatical rites, preach the wildest theories and work themselves into a state of mad excitement for their particular zeal. So this is the secular newspaper, Los Angeles Times, reporting on this revival. And so I think maybe they could say the same thing about like the Desperation conference last night. They got wild. They broke the stage. <laughs> Did you hear about that? They, a bunch of kids got on, they broke the stage because they're people worshiping God, you know. But here's what they say, but this is about the revival. Azusa Street. Colored people and a sprinkling of whites compose the congregation. The night is made uh, hideous in the neighborhood by the howlings of worshipers who spend houses, who, who send the houses swaying to and fro. <laughs> they claim to have the gift of tongues and being able to understand the babble. And then someone there uh, wrote this down in one of their journals. It says that proud and well dressed pre- preachers come to investigate. But soon their high looks were replaced by wonder. Then conviction comes, and very often you will find them in a short time wallowing on the dirty floor, asking God to forgive them and make them of, as little children. So you see this revival. It's, it's, it's the real deal as far as in our history looking back and saying, wow, God, God used this revival. Even though there was weird stuff going on and um, maybe some wild worship which I don't think is crazy. I mean, I like to wildly worship. But even though maybe some weird things happened at this church, God used it to spread his message, the message that he's still alive, he's still working, he's still doing miraculous things for today. Amen? Amen to that. All right, here's what I want to do. Um, I have I have actually quite a few more things to talk about. Amy Simpleton McPherson, Oral Roberts, and then this idea of what happens when the Spirit falls. I'm going to hold off and, and talk about that next week. Uh, we only have five minutes, and I thought that maybe I could open up for some discussion, dialogue, conversation questions amongst us. Sound fun? I know it does. But it sounds, you might be thinking, oh I'm too scared to ask a question. Don't be too scared. Be bold. Ask a question about something that we've been talking about um, and and then we'll talk about it. Because you all are in various places in your stages with walking with the Lord. And some of you are brand new to this charismatic stuff. And what I might have just said went way over your head. Because I really didn't explain the charismatic movement. I just explained the history behind it. And so any type of question would be a good question. I see a hand in the back. Yeah. Here's how it happens here at New Life. Um, usually uh, at the mill, you can go forward, and, and, and there's people there to pray for you. At this, if you're at the 11 o'clock service right after, after we dismiss, there's almost always a point when uh, Ross Parsley or someone will say, pastors and elders, come forward to pray for people. And that's your opportunity to come forward. And all you need to do is say, I would like you to pray for me to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then they'll pray for you. And it's really just uh, an experience between you and God. I mean, when I first got baptized in the Holy Spirit, I, d- I just, I mean, the, the guy was kind of awkwardly just having me repeat this prayer. He's like, okay, I, Joe Kirkendall, receive the Holy Spirit. And <laughs> so I repeated this prayer. But the words, it doesn't really, you know, it, the, the words and how it's really done doesn't really matter. Because in the book of Acts, it happens in different ways, um, it happens at different times. There's one instance in the book of Acts where people are just standing together, and they're praying. And then a, tongues, they just start busting out in tongues. No one prayed for them. It's, no one laid their hand on them. They just started praying and speaking out in tongues. Kind of cool. But that's how, that's how we usually do it at New Life. We, there's, you, could, you could go forward after a meeting, or you could, I mean, you could come to me and my wife and, and say, would you pray for me? I just want to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I've prayed for lots of people, and lots of people have had uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and they, they they spoke in tongues after uh, we prayed for them. Other questions? Yes, Andrew Sarton. Oh, so. Andrew Womack, Ooh, Andrew Womack. The, the, what he presented last week? Yeah. I wish I was there last week. <laughs> what were we doing? Me and my wife went home for some reason. Were you sick? I was sick? No, you were sick. Yeah, I, I wasn't there. That's a really good question, I'm sure. Was anybody there? (laughs) That's so bad. Now now you all know I skipped last week. But I was in Sunday school. Sorry, I can't. There was? Yes, ma'am. Yes. That's a really good question. Yeah, the, the, the whole speaking in tongues and then Corinthians especially. I think the Corinthian church, if you read the book of Corinthians, you'll probably read into it and see that they were a wild church. Like really wild. Like breaking the stage on every week kind of church. Um, but the, this, Paul talks and says... That when you speak in tongues for everyone to hear, there needs to be an interpretation. Or else it's just weird. If one of you st- stands up and just starts babbling, and then sits down, and then we're like, okay, let's carry on. That'd be weird, right? And Paul Paul pretty much says that. Obviously, my own you know, wor- wording of it is differently. But Paul says that when someone speaks corporately in tongues, there needs to be an interpretation of tongues. And I've seen that uh, a handful of times where someone... Will be pr- maybe like in a prayer meeting. Someone will start speaking in tongues really loudly, and then at the prayer. then everyone's just kind of like, okay. But then, someone says, "I, I kind of I, I believe that God has given me an interpretation of what you just said," and it's it's usually pretty cool. Every instance that I've ever seen it has been pretty cool. Where someone will speak in tongues out loud enough for everyone to hear, and then a person will say, "Here's what I believe God has shown me, an interpretation of what you just said." And if you're new to this stuff, it's weird. But it's in the Bible, you know, if you're a Christian, you just have to say this stuff is in the Bible. It's right here. And so the other part, the other part of your question is that usually people refer to speaking in tongues as a prayer language. And Paul says um, when uh, Paul says uh, he speaks. Let's see. For when I pray in a tongue, this is Corinthians 14, verse 14. When I pray in a tongue, my mind prays, but my spirit is unfruitful. What should I do? Shall I pray with my spirit? Shall I also pray with my mind? Will I sing with my spirit? Will I also sing with my mind? And he talks about how he um, has, has a prayer language with God. We, the term prayer language isn't in the Bible. It's just something that we, we use to talk about it. But then he says, verse 18, but in the church I would rather speak five intelligible words than 10,000 words in a tongue. But then he goes back and says, I wish all of you spoke in tongues. So it seems to me that there's two, two types of things. Uh, a private, personal Prayer language is what, is what we would probably refer to it in that those terms. Speaking in tongues by yourself and it just praying to God in languages that you're not sure what's going on. You're just kind of spraying. Your, your spirit is speaking to God's spirit is how I would explain it. And then on the other side of that, there's the corporate. Speaking in tongues loud enough for everybody to hear. And then what the Bible says is we're not a church of disorder. We need to Somebody needs to interpret what was just said or else it's weird. And so that's what I would say. All right, ladies and gentlemen, these are excellent questions. We're going to pick up next week as we continue talking about our charismatic church history. Continue thinking of great questions. I think next week we'll open it up for questions as well. Hopefully have some more time. But let's close in prayer, shall we?